Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to BFR Radio's first podcast for 2022. Hope you've all had a good festive season and recharged. I'm excited for this year, and in particular, I'm working really hard to put together my accreditation course online and also provide online training programs, along with just general strength and fitness programs. This means if you've been thinking about learning more about BFR in a structured manner, or you just want to generally improve your own training, with the use of BFR cuffs, I can help you with all of this. Just contact me through my socials or the Contact Us page on my website. And also a small little rebrand on the way. So once again, lots of big things happening and I'm pretty excited. Also, if you are looking for more content on how to implement BFR into your own training, check out my Instagram, which is at Chris Gavilio, or my YouTube channel, which is Sports Rehab Oz. That's Oz, A-U-S for Australia. The next series of articles will focus on the hormonal benefits of BFR. A lot of the articles I review look at training intervention studies, i.e. you train with BFR cuffs on and it usually results in some kind of positive response. These studies are great to highlight the practical side of BFR and the benefits of adding it to your own training. Sometimes it's good to understand the deeper mechanisms as to why things work And some of the positive responses that we see with BFR training are due to increases in anabolic hormones within the body. And in particular, increases in anabolic hormones is one of the main mechanisms of BFR. A lot of these anabolic hormones may be familiar to you, such as growth hormone, testosterone, and insulin-like growth factor. Therefore, the concept behind the next few episodes is to look at some of these different anabolic hormones. In particular, I'm going to highlight the basics of each hormone and its benefits from a health viewpoint. From there, I'm going to bring in BFR. To prevent you from all getting bored, I'm going to try to pick out the best bits. So if these episodes spark your interest, once again, I urge you to please get the research article out and read more in detail. Growth hormone is going to be our first hormone that we look at. To bring this episode together, I've referred to numerous general articles and reviews on growth hormones, And then I've brought in more BFR-specific studies. Looking at from a broad viewpoint, human growth hormone is a peptide hormone. And it's one of seven hormones produced by the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland. Human growth hormone is secreted in a pulsatile fashion, generally following a circadian rhythm throughout the day. Human growth hormone is secreted in 6 to 12 discrete pulses per day with the largest pulse being observed around one hour after the onset of nighttime sleep. That's around midnight in the majority of cases. A number of physiological stimuli can initiate human growth hormone secretion, and the most powerful non-pharmacological of which are sleep and exercise. Human growth hormone have varied roles throughout life, from growth itself, including the turnover of muscle, bone and collagen, to the regulation of selective aspects of metabolic function, including increased fat metabolism and the maintenance of a healthier body composition in later life. Growth hormone secretion reaches its maximum around late teenage life and falls progressively thereafter. 
the total amount of growth hormone secreted over 24 hours in normal adults over the age of 65 is, in the majority of cases, overlapping with people with organic growth hormone deficiency, secondary to paturity pathology or its treatment. There is evidence of a progressive decline in the levels of growth hormone with increasing age. The so-called somatopause, in some reports, shows that secretion of growth hormone may be only 60% of that of a young adult by age 70 years. And the majority of middle-aged and elderly normal subjects may be considered at times incompletely growth hormone deficient. Growth hormone's major action is to stimulate protein synthesis, which is really important with increases in muscle strength and also size. It is at least as powerful as testosterone in this effect, and as they both operate through distinct pathways, their individual effects are additive or possibly even synergistic. In addition to stimulating protein synthesis, growth hormone simultaneously mobilizes fat by a direct lipolytic action. Together, these two effects are responsible for the partitioning action of growth hormone, whereby it diverts nutritional calories to protein synthesis. The fact that exercise stimulates growth hormone secretion is well known, and although the exact mechanisms remain elusive, a number of candidates have been implicated. These include neural stimulation, feedback from release of insulin-like growth factors, direct stimulation by catecholamines, lactate, and or nitric oxide. Exercise stimulates the release of growth hormone into the general circulation, thereby stimulating other growth factors in general tissues around the body. For example, it's been suggested that muscle hypertrophy is one of the outcomes that may be mediated by growth hormone as a response to exercise. In addition to the recognized effects on growth, human growth hormone is also believed to affect substrate utilization during exercise. That's to help give you energy during exercise. The positive impact of administration of exogenous growth hormone upon body composition, muscle mass, and metabolic function widens the potential for its abuse from explosive to endurance athletes looking for illicit ways to improve performance in sport. What's exogenous growth hormone? That's basically a technical term for a pharmacological substance that is usually injected in this case into the body. However, in all likelihood, the same adaptations that are beneficial to performance can also be accomplished by the application of appropriate specific physical training, which will promote human growth hormone release during exercise and at rest. Growth hormone stimulates many metabolic processes in all cells, but one of its best known actions is the generation of insulin-like growth factors, and in particular, insulin growth factor 1 or IGF-1. Growth involving growth hormone is via a number of mechanisms, and some of these include insulin growth factors and direct stimulation by lactate and or nitric oxide, as I mentioned just briefly before. The current accepted hypothesis on growth involving growth hormone is known as the somatomedin hypothesis, where it states that in the liver and other target cells, through interaction with its receptor, human growth hormone induces the production of somatomedins or insulin growth factors. Insulin growth factor 1, in particular, is another anabolic hormonal marker of interest, both from a sporting and general health viewpoint. However, I'm going to leave that one for our next podcast. There are growth hormone receptors on all cells in the body, and it appears that growth hormone exerts effects on most, if not all, of these cells. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of growth hormone-dependent markers 
produced under the influence of growth hormone. Insulin growth factor 1 just happens to be the best known of these, but since the majority of circulating insulin growth factor comes from the liver, we should now think of insulin growth factor 1 more as a mark of growth hormone action rather than the secondary messenger of growth hormone action. Hence, the injection of exogenous growth hormone has been used clinically to treat various pediatric growth deficiencies, adult growth hormone deficiency, short stature, and acquired immune deficiency syndrome-related muscle wasting. Although it is not approved for injury treatment, some athletes have used human growth hormone for injury treatment to attempt to facilitate an early return to competition. The belief that human growth hormone has a clinical role in accelerating recovery after injury is not limited to athletes alone. There have been instances in which medical professionals have administered human growth hormone off-label in an attempt to facilitate healing after injury, although there are not convincing data that supports its use for this purpose. To date, there have been few scientific studies that have examined the efficacy of the use of human growth hormone to accelerate recovery from injury. Human growth hormone has been used experimentally in various models in an attempt to accelerate wound healing with different results. The hypothesis that growth hormone can facilitate recovery from injury is also supported by studies that suggest a possible relationship between human growth hormone and accelerated bone healing exists. In the aging population, growth hormone has drawn a lot of interest due to the ability for external growth hormone administration to decrease body fat, increase muscle mass, and reverse the reduction in skin thickness in the elderly. As an example, in a study of subjects who were administered human growth hormone, there was a reported 7% rise in lean body mass, 14% reduction in fat mass, and a 7% increase in fasting blood glucose. However, they also reported disturbances in glucose homeostasis indicative of a preclinical diabetic state. In growth hormone deficient adults, growth hormone given in physiological replacement doses to adults resulted in remarkable changes in body composition with, on average, a 5 kilo increase in lean body mass within the first month and a comparable loss of 5 kilos of fat. The fat loss, in particular, was from the intra-abdominal region where fat accumulates in the growth hormone deficient state. In parallel with these changes in body composition, the subnormal exercise performance and strength of these adults with growth hormone deficiency were returned to normal. Now, once again, emphasize that in this study, they were growth hormone deficient. Evidence about the abuse of growth hormone in sport is largely anecdotal and circumstantial since, although banned by the International Olympic Committee, there is as yet no recognized test for detecting its abuse. With respect to the sporting environment, growth hormone administration alone has shown to have no effect on human muscle size and muscle protein synthesis, despite being otherwise commonly assumed by coaches and athletes. A perception of increased performance in explosive events is almost certainly mistaken. However, there may be subjective changes in kinesthesia due to both the perception of edema and possibly increased muscle stiffness due to the growth of collagen tissue. It is rather the combination of growth hormone with other exogenous hormones, such as insulin growth factor 1, that have demonstrated significant anabolic effects than the administration of either hormones alone in isolation. While the potential ergogenic effects of human growth hormone administration are attractive to athletes who wish to gain an unfair advantage, 
the abuse of growth hormone has been associated with an increased incidence of arthralia, which is a term used to describe aching or pain in one of more of the body's joints, arthritis, cardiomegaly, which is a term referred to in a large heart, muscle weakness, which is strange considering you'll take growth hormone for muscle, abnormally high concentrations of fat or lipids in the blood, impaired glucose regulation, and also the risk of type 1 diabetes, mellitus, and impotence. So as with everything, there are risks with taking exogenous hormones. All this aside, my profession as a strength and conditioning coach, I work with drug-free athletes, and hence I look to ways to naturally enhance the anabolic hormonal concentrations within the athlete's body. And there's a few ways of doing that. And as I mentioned earlier, the most powerful non-pharmacological ways of increasing growth hormone secretion in the body is both sleep and exercise. If we briefly look at sleep, the sleep-related burst of growth hormone secretion occurs most consistently during the phase of deep, slow-wave sleep and most commonly occurring during the early hours of sleep. In conditions where sleep pattern is disturbed, growth hormone secretion is impaired. So, as an example, for those people with obstructive sleep apnea, the introduction of effective therapy for the sleep disturbance through the creation of a continuous positive airway restores growth hormone secretion back to normal. Hypnotics, or sleeping pills that reduce the period of slow-wave sleep, impair growth hormone secretion, and conversely, drugs that enhance slow-wave sleep also enhances growth hormone secretion. Exercise-induced growth hormone release has a positive role to play. Firstly, from optimizing training adaptation in elite athletes, through to reducing the incidence of growth hormone abuse in sport, all the way to improving the general quality of life in the aging population. Therefore, specific training regimes may also elicit training adaptation mediated by naturally occurring human growth hormone. Studies of resistance exercise, endurance training, and high-intensity training have all highlighted the significant increases in exercise-induced growth hormone release. If we look at resistance training, the load and frequency of an exercise are determining factors in the regulation of human growth hormone concentration. In particular, heavy resistance training incorporating high volume and high intensity using large muscle groups results in significant increases in exercise-induced growth hormone release. In endurance-based exercise, it appears to be a combination of the intensity, duration, frequency, and mode of exercise that determines the level of growth hormone released. Some studies have suggested an intensity threshold exists for exercise-induced growth hormone release. Pool data from 29 studies suggests that the threshold for optimal human growth hormone secretion occurs on average above 40% of VO2 max. Of this, the majority of authors suggest that for a consistent exercise-induced growth hormone release, an exercise intensity above 60% of VO2 max is required. It has been suggested that the threshold for the exercise-induced human growth hormone surge is also consistent with lactate threshold. Exercise may also affect human growth hormone release at rest. One study showed that exercise training above the lactate threshold amplified the positile release of human growth hormone at rest, while exercise below the lactate threshold didn't. Training in the study was for a duration of one year with training volume gradually increasing each week. Training at lactate threshold was compared against training above the lactate threshold 
and the training above the lactate threshold was reported to be more effective for increasing the total volume of human growth hormone secreted within 24 hours. In addition to intensity-mediated differences, frequency of exercise appears to play a role in the pulsatile secretion of human growth hormone. For example, repeated bouts of aerobic exercise on the same day, that is three 30-minute bouts at 70% of VO2 max, appear to significantly increase the daytime integrated human growth hormone concentration without significant changes in nocturnal concentrations compared with control conditions. The increase in human growth hormone secretion with repeat bouts was also related to an increase in the pulse amplitude and also the mass of human growth hormone secreted per pulse. The authors conclude that high-intensity aerobic exercise is a potent stimulus of human growth hormone secretion and suggested that repeated bouts of exercise on the same day are able to consistently stimulate human growth hormone secretion without attenuation of the human growth hormone response later that evening. Therefore, this type of exercise regime may suit both increases in muscle mass and metabolic adaptations that could aid improvements in endurance performance. Furthermore, findings suggest that exercise duration of more than 10 minutes at intensity above this threshold is required for a significant elevation in human growth hormone secretion from baseline. Moving away from athletes and sports and into the general population, aging is often associated with a progressive decline in the volume of exercise and very often associated with a decrease in the intensity of the exercise as well. The evidence for beneficial health adaptations resulting from modest levels of low to moderate intensity exercise are now overwhelming and form the basis of many exercise guidelines for improving health. However, a growing body of evidence suggests that higher intensity exercise than was previously believed may be more effective in eliciting beneficial health, well-being, and also training outcomes. Studies have demonstrated that the acute response to heavy resistance exercise is reduced with aging, but that a chronic resistance exercise program can cause increases in the acute exercise-induced growth hormone release, alongside increases in just general strength. The exercise-induced growth hormone release may contribute to the beneficial responses to exercises seen across the whole population, with particular importance in the maintenance of quality of life. In a great many cases, the impact of some of the delirious effects of aging could significantly be reduced if individuals remain active, promoting this exercise-induced growth hormone response. Often this will require exercise at a higher intensity than is currently common in elderly populations. One of the standouts with the use of exercise to increase growth hormone release is the intensity required. In particular, higher intensities appear to be the most efficient, as well as potentially a move towards looking at high-frequency training, that is, multiple sessions within a day, to be ideal in those looking to maximize growth hormone release. If we just move the concept of high-frequency training aside and just discuss the need for high-intensity training, some people may somewhat struggle with this due to a previous low level of training ability, injuries, or in some cases, just even time. This, I feel, is a perfect time to segue into BFR. What I'm going to do here is summarize a spread of the role of different BFR interventions and changes in human growth hormone concentrations. If we first look at BFR strength training, one study investigated if exercise-induced growth hormone release differed between different muscle groups. 
i.e. arms and leg exercises, whilst performing BFR resistance exercises in young male adults. All the participants engaged in two types of exercise on separate days within one week. The upper extremity exercise consisted of elbow flexion and elbow extension, that's bicep curls and tricep extension, and the lower extremity exercise consisted of squat and knee flexion, or leg extension. Training consisted of the 75 rep protocol, that's where the first set is 30 repetitions, followed by three sets of 15 at 20% of their one rep max. Blood samples were taken at pre, immediately post-exercise, as well as 15 and 60 minutes post-exercise. The growth hormone concentration was significantly elevated at immediately post, 15 and 60 minutes post-exercise in both the upper and lower extremity, where there was a 10 to 15-fold increase from baseline at immediately post-exercise and a greater 25-fold increase in growth hormone concentration from baseline 30 minutes after the conclusion of the session. Another BFR resistance training study involving, again, young male athletes aged between 20 to 22 years, performed leg extensions which consisted of five sets of exercise at a mean intensity of 20% of 1RM. In each set, they did something a little bit different. The subjects repeated the movements until exhaustion and the average reps per set completed was approximately 14 reps. The reason why I wanted to mention this study is that firstly, the protocol wasn't our typical 75 rep protocol, but rather it was five sets to fatigue, which is when you look at the Katsu world is one of the ways that they program their training. And you can actually do that yourself where you would do your first set to fatigue or exhaustion under good technique, of course, and then you'd have a short rest and then go again. And if you log your reps over time, what you want to try and do is use your training program or your training diary as a way of continually motivating yourself. And that's another way of increasing the stress per set over time, which is really important as well, is, is that we're not just sticking at 20% and we're doing a 75 reps, there are three sets of 15, but we're looking at ways of trying to slowly increasing the total amount of stress, or in this case, reps, or sometimes small load as a way to get these improvements. Anyway, digress there a little bit, but the reason why I actually really wanted to mention this study is that the concentration of growth hormone reached a level of approximately 290 times as high as that of the resting level, 15 minutes after exercise. That's absolutely amazing considering the exercise session lasted for approximately 10 minutes only. Looking at older populations, men of approximately 70 years of age performed double leg extensions at 20% of 1RM whilst wearing BFR cuffs on their thighs. Using the 75 rep protocol, this training resulted in a significant 3.3-fold increase in growth hormone at 15 and also 30 minutes after exercise. Females have also reported increases in human growth hormone. Performing unilateral leg extensions resulted in an acute 4% increase in absolute growth hormone concentrations immediately and 30 minutes after training. Interestingly, these increases in growth hormone were similar to those elicited by a higher intensity loading protocol without wearing BFR cuffs. So that's where the unilateral leg extension comes in. On one leg, they wore the cuff at 20% and used a low intensity protocol. And on the other leg, they went heavy and they had the same kind of growth hormone responses. Increases in human growth hormone have also been reported in cardiovascular training as well. 
walking with BFR cuffs on the thighs have shown to increase human growth hormone concentrations to a 13-fold increase higher than the pre-exercise levels both immediately and 15 minutes after exercise. The low-intensity protocol they used involved the participants walking at a speed of only 50 meters per minute for five sets of two-minute bouts. And to be honest, the more papers I kept reading, the more evidence there was indicating the advantages of the addition of adding blood flow restriction to low-intensity exercise is a great way to significantly increase growth hormone concentrations. Before I close, whilst reading all these papers, there was two points that I felt were common across these studies. The first was that the cuff pressure used was slightly higher. On average, pressures were reported around 200 millimeters of mercury. However, it's also important to note here that they did use a thinner cuff width of around three to four centimeters. These cuffs appeared to be the Katsu brand, which are of a thinner width design. And the reason why I mention this is that it's important to remember that cuff width affects the pressure required to occlude blood flow at the desired percentage of arterial occlusion. In other words, cuff brands which have a wider width do not require the same level of inflation pressure to create the same required percentage of arterial occlusion you are using. If you are looking at 50% of arterial occlusion using a thinner cuff, you're going to have to use more pressure than if you're using a wider cuff of, say, around 10 centimeters. So make sure that you take into consideration the width of your cuffs before following the advice of any of these papers. And the second point is that the increase in growth hormone concentrations were acute and peaked around the 30 to 45 minutes after BFR exercise. And as the exercise protocols were quite short, you theoretically could repeat this more than once in a day if that's what you're after. Overall, if we're looking at the benefits of growth hormone and you want to do it safely, there are two easy ways to do it. Sleep is the first one, and BFR low intensity exercise is the other. Both are easy to do and something that you can control. And as the BFR exercise sessions lend it to being time efficient and easier to perform compared to high load resistance training, overall, this is a really great option for you. Hope you enjoyed that one. And for people who are looking at just the general health benefits of growth hormone, can see that there are some really safe ways of doing that. And that the bonus is, is that you're exercising as well in a really safe manner. And I think it's a fantastic option for you if you're in that aging population, looking at the health benefits, or even athletes as well, looking at maximizing their training and competition response. Next week, I'm going to look at insulin growth factor one, which I mentioned it briefly in this podcast, and I'm going to let you know what it's all about and how it benefits you and how it relates to BFR. If this review of growth hormone and BFR training has sparked your own interest in starting an exercise regime, get in touch with me through my website or my socials, which is at Chris Gavilio. The Sports Rehab Tourniquet brand of BFR cuffs can also be purchased through my website, and you can find it at sportsrehab.com. .com.au. Before I go, a couple of favors from me to you. If you know of someone who would benefit from this episode, please share it. And also, if you are enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. And remember to keep the pump.